0: Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Out of thankfulness to God for giving us his word, at the end of the reading I will conclude by saying, this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond, thanks be to God. Today's reading is from Isaiah 42 verses 1 through 9. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him; he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice, or make a herd in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people and light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. This is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise carved idols. Behold, the former things I have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Amen. Thanks, Cadence. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you. My name is uh, Ian. If I have a chance to meet you, the privilege of being one of the pastors here, and uh, honor and joy to uh, gather for worship with you this morning. I saw the spirit was moving. The, the got dark in here all of a sudden, and then it came back up. So, I mean, the spirit's at work, guys. Just trust it. Believe it. <laughs> Uh, miss being with you all last week. I was over at uh, Alathea, Tampa, our sending church, uh, preaching for them. It's good to be uh, back home with them, so to speak, but I always miss uh, gathering with uh, our church family here when I was gone. So I know Pastor Pat served you well uh, out of Isaiah. Um, there's been a lot of tears from this stage lately, so I don't know about this morning. No promises there on that, but I know it was an emotional morning and a good one uh, that Pat pointed us to the hope of Christ that was there. Uh, and excited to continue in Isaiah here this morning in chapter 42. Uh, Back in 2014, which was seven years ago, which makes me feel old, even though I'm not yet that old, uh, 2014 Slate Magazine dubbed it the Year of Outrage. And they released a bunch of articles and essays about all the things that we as a culture and a people get outraged about, and really how that posture has taken over most of the conversations that we have in a public setting. Now, I'm not sure about you, but that was seven years ago. Um, Do you think things are better or worse now? I'll let you answer that question, right? Uh, Yeah, we certainly live in a culture that just feels like outrage is the currency that we run on. Uh, Scott Sauls, in his excellent book that I would commend to you, a gentle answer, Uh, he observes the following, and this won't be on the screen, just listen closely to what he says. He says, in our current cultural moment, outrage has become more expected than surprising more normative than odd, more encouraged than discouraged, and more rewarded than rejected. Outrage undergirds each day's breaking news. It's part of the air that we breathe. Tribes and echo chambers form, social media feeds grow, political pontifications multiply, book deals prosper, podcasts rant, and churches split. On some level, we are all engaged in the seemingly insatiable theme of us against them. Does that resonate with you at all? It feels like that's the culture we find ourselves in. And what I want to propose to you this morning, brothers and sisters, is that this culture of outrage ought not be the case in the church of Jesus Christ. And the reason why, as we're going to see in Isaiah 42, is that Jesus himself is not this way. Now, don't hear me wrongly, It's not because there are not righteous reasons to be angry. Certainly, Jesus at times did express what we might say is a sort of outrage or a righteous anger, and the scriptures absolutely have a category for that. I'm just going to let you know that's another sermon for another time, though. That's not where we're headed this morning. What I want to look at today is just this posture that we seem to have toward one another. It should not be the case in the church. We see that whoever gets the most angry tends to win. Whoever raises their voice the loudest, makes the biggest social media splash, is applauded, and you better know who us is and who them are if you're going to make it, right? And I think Isaiah 42 is going to confront this sort of culture of outrage head on. It's going to give us a picture of a servant who is also a king, a paradox of the greatest proportions. But even more than that, this king is going to be marked by a gentleness toward the weak, the useless, and the discarded by society. It's going to be a confronting passage to what we typically value as power and authority and kingdoms here on earth. So let me give you our main idea, and then we'll we'll pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Here's the main idea this morning. Jesus is the promised servant of God who will bring worldwide justice by dealing with gently with the weak. Jesus is the promised servant of God who brings worldwide justice by dealing gently with the weak. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we come before you uh, in need of a fresh reminder of your grace and your kindness. Uh, We are a needy people. Uh, We have worshipped all sorts of other things this week, we have tried to find our identity and security in any and everything but you, and so I pray this morning you would reset our souls, reset our hearts, reset our worship upon you. Uh, May you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond to the good news of the gospel as we see it in Isaiah this morning. Lord, I pray as we consider how to uh, apply this to our lives and to our church community, that you would take the ethics of this servant king and you would impress it in our souls and that our community would be one that matches the aims and the mission of Jesus himself. So may you accomplish that in our time together. Help us uh, see that your kindness leads us to greater faith and repentance and accomplish that this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Right, as we walk through these nine verses in Isaiah 42, I want to look at the mission, the method, and then the success of the servant. The mission, the method, and the success. There was no nothing that success could make an M. Sorry, I've tried to get it all alliterative, but sometimes it doesn't happen. So, the mission of the servant... The method of the servant and the success of the servant. Now at times, as we open up in Isaiah 42 here, throughout the Old Testament, uh, Israel itself or a particular king or ruler has been referred with the same label as the servant of God. However, by the time we get to Isaiah, it's clear that Israel has failed in this role. They did not uphold their covenantal responsibilities as a nation of priests who were to serve as an intermediary between God and the watching world. Instead, they had turned to idols, and in this chapter we find that they are now in exile in Babylon. In fact, later on in the chapter, in verses 18 through 20, the Lord addresses his failed servant Israel. He says this if you want to look down with me at verses 18 through 20. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord is summarizing there that Israel, God's chosen people, had failed in this role. They saw, but they didn't really see. They heard things, but they didn't really hear. They had lack of a sense of God's activity and what was happening in the world. And so therefore, four times in this section in Isaiah that we're in right now, there's a servant song introduced. And these servant songs seem to be a reference to a single individual who is sent to carry out God's will and fulfill his mission for his people. Each of these servant songs creates within us a messianic expectation And as we're going to see, this servant will accomplish far beyond what Israel or any earthly king or ruler ever could accomplish. So look back at verse 1. Let's look at how this opens. It says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So we see right off the bat, this servant is beloved by God and upheld by the Lord himself and strengthened by him. There's a personal relationship of intimacy and a divine delight in this servant. He walked closely with God, and the very strength of the Lord was behind his mission. He was empowered by the Spirit. God's personal presence was with him. Now, I'm going to go ahead and spoil this for you right now. The servant is talking about Jesus, okay? Spoiler alert. That's what's happening here. And I'm not just... Making a guess at that, by the way, the New Testament over and over again quotes these servant songs and applies them to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me give you just a quick example. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, at his baptism, do you remember what happens? He's baptized by John the Baptist as he comes out of the water. It says that the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove, right? empowered by the Spirit. And then a voice from heaven proclaims, this is my beloved son, which is a quotation from Psalm 2, this messianic king who is to come. And then he says, with whom I am well pleased, which is a quote from right here in Isaiah 42. Same thing happens at the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew 17. See, from the beginning, these servant songs are pointing us to Jesus himself. So, if that's the introduction to this servant, what is his mission? Well, we see two overarching themes, two overarching aims to the mission of this figure. And the first is this, he will bring justice to the nations. He will bring justice to the nations. We see it right here in verse 1. Now, this is the desire of all kingdoms and governments and nations and leaders, isn't it? We might disagree with how we define justice, and surely, as a world, we do disagree on that. But all kingdoms and governments, they're trying to instill their own version of what is right and wrong, their own vision of the good life, and what they view as justice into the culture that they have influence over. And I think that justice is arguably the key word in this passage. It shows up three times in the first four verses. Now, when I say the word justice, what comes to mind for you? What are the things that populate in your mind? See, I think when we hear the word justice, we often associate it with the notion of retributive justice, which is what happens in a legal system or a courtroom, for example. We tend to think of justice as crime and punishment or the criminal justice system. Something, someone does something illegal, and then justice is served, right, by handing down a consequence or a sentence. Now, this is absolutely a part of justice, but in the Scriptures, it's only... One aspect of what justice is. You see, God's word points to that and something much larger. Biblically, justice in the big picture is the idea of wholeness, of flourishing for all people. It's the Hebrew idea of shalom, if you've heard that. That's not just an absence of peace, it's the way things are supposed to be. A just society biblically speaking, has right relationships between all parties in that society. A just culture would be marked by the ethic of loving your neighbor as yourself. Which, by the way, if we think about it, if we all lived that out, if we all truly loved our neighbor as ourselves, there'd be no need for retributive justice, would there? So this servant is coming to bring that kind of justice, a wholeness, a right relationship between all. And notice where he's bringing that. He's not just bringing it to Israel. He's not just bringing it to some parts of the world. What does it say? He's bringing it to the nations, as in all of it. To the ends of the earth will his justice be brought. He has come to usher in the world that we all long for, but have always failed to achieve. That's the first aim, justice to the nations. And if that's not a big enough aim, the second aim is this salvation to the nations. Look at verse 5 and following. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. You see, the servant is the personification or the embodiment of God's covenant He's made with His people. Where Israel and where we could not uphold our end of the deal, the Lord will move toward us again with His covenantal love through this servant. And the servant will do what we cannot do for ourselves. I mean, that language there in verse 6 and 7 is pretty powerful. He will be a light to the nations and those who are walking in darkness. He will open the eyes of the blind, which in the ministry of Jesus was both a physical reality and a spiritual reality, wasn't it? He came to roll back the impacts of sin and its blinding effects on us as human beings. He sets free the prisoners who sit in bondage and enslavement and darkness. He will come with a liberating power to break free those who are in chains. As one commentator says, this servant will undo all the horrendous and degrading effects that sin has had on the human race and restore to people their true freedom and dignity as sons and daughters of God. It's quite the mission, isn't it? That is pretty big in scope. But he comes, and he wants to accomplish all of these things. Uh, I love the, the famous hymn writer Charles Wesley. Uh, right after his conversion, he wrote a famous hymn. It's called, And Can It Be? And I grow up going to church? No, And Can It Be? It's a good song. In the uh, fourth verse, he points to, I think, the greatest reality that these verses are speaking to. And I'm not going to sing it for you, but I'm going to read it, Okay says this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That is the story of salvation. That is the story that is being promised here in this servant. And if you're here and you're in Christ, that is your story too. See, the mission of this servant is to bring justice and salvation to the very ends of the earth. And in this way, this servant is the substance for all we might hope for. He doesn't merely speak a new covenant. He is the new covenant. He doesn't just point to where people can find the light. He comes and says, "What I am the light of the world. He doesn't tell people how they can be set free from their chains. He himself breaks the prisoners free. You see, that is the mission of the servants. But the surprising turn in this passage is not with the mission, though that's grand and glorious and we should appreciate that. It's with the method that this servant goes about accomplishing that that mission. You see, this servant, what we're going to see, will produce the results of a king without the typical methods of a king. Look at verse two, it says, he, this servant, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. This is the idea of shouting down other voices in an attempt to drown them out. And it says he will not do this in the streets, meaning in public locations. He will not aggressively push his agenda. This means he is not stirring up outrage like we like to stir up outrage today. He doesn't do what we as a culture do in order to win or accomplish whatever we've set out to do. See, I don't think Jesus would have a Twitter account if he came today. In fact, I feel almost positive he would not. But it's not just that he goes about his work quietly with diligence. It also comes in verse 3 with who he chooses to work with. This is a beautiful verse. Look what it says. A bruised reed he will not break. In a faintly burning wick he will not quench he will faithfully bring forth justice i want to camp out in these verses for a while because they're just so rich and beautiful let's get the imagery right here it says a bruised reed as in a a branch or a stick or maybe a stalk of grain if you can picture it it's about to snap it's got a really big bend in the middle of it it's still one piece but in any given moment could be gone could be snapped right in half. If it was a, a stalk of grain, it would never produce grain again. And this word for bruised, it means not just a simple mark on your skin, it's the idea of being crushed. It's a deep contusion, almost like a knockout punch in a boxing match or an MMA fight. This reed is it's about to snap. It's bruised right in the middle. It would be viewed as good for nothing. And then it says, a faintly burning wick. You know when you get to the very end of a candle or a fire, right? I saw Publix had the firewood out this week, right? It dipped below 70 for one hot second. And they were like, oh, firewood. But you know when you get to the end of a candle or fire, all you have left is just a barely a little bit of a flame. It's barely holding on. That's the picture here. It's a flame that's about to go out. And how do we get rid of it? Well, simple as just blowing out a candle, Right? takes no effort on our part. If you've had a fire going, then you snuff it out and make sure that whatever is left has been put out. But you see, this servant looks at the bruised reed. He looks at the faintly flickering wick, and he does not snap it in half, and he does not snuff it out. No, he deals gently with each of those people. You see, these are symbolic for anyone who is broken, crushed, lowly who might feel worthless who might be discarded by the society at large they have no real value to other people but the servant he will show compassion mercy and gentleness this servant will handle with care he takes that bruised reed and he gently holds on to it carefully setting it back right He takes just that tiny little flickering flame, and what does he do? He fans it back into life. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? I love Eugene Peterson's translation of the message. He says that this servant won't call attention to what he does with loud speeches or gaudy parades. He won't brush aside the bruised and the hurt, and he won't disregard the small and the insignificant. Now, I would ask you, what kind of king acts like that. I mean, what kind of king acts like that? I mean, certainly not the kings of the earth and the nations, do they? I mean, in any time and place, no one goes about the agenda of bringing a kingdom to bear like this. A bruised reed, I knew I was going to do that, a bruised reed and a faintly flickering wick, there's nothing that they're bringing to the table that's real strong, but yet this king seeks them out, specifically. Just before this, in Isaiah 41, Isaiah prophesied about the coming of King Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, in history from Persia. And his reputation is right there in in chapter 41, verse 25. It says, I stirred up one from the north, speaking of Cyrus, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, he shall call upon my name. He ends up setting uh, those who are in exile free. But then it says this, he shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. See, Cyrus is just a microcosm for all human kings and how they go about their business, isn't he? I mean, it tells us that eventually muscle, propaganda, coercion, strength, and power, that's how we attain this so-called justice. That's how we bring our agenda to bear. Kings and queens and leaders, they'll try to push their way forward using force when needed. They will swagger their way to spread dominion. They impose heavy yokes, and they conquer at all costs. But then here stands this servant. Here stands Jesus, who doesn't make a scene in the streets. He doesn't parade around. He's a, he takes the most vulnerable, the most weak, and he strengthens them. It was Jesus, after all, who said that, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The very longest quotation of the Old Testament in Matthew's Gospel which Matthew's gospel quotes the Old Testament all the time, comes from right here in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. There's something about this picture that so captures the ministry of Jesus that Matthew and the gospel writers bring attention to it all the time. See in Matthew 12 where this is quoted, if we look at the context there, there's a man with a withered hand. He enters a synagogue on the Sabbath day. And the religious leaders of the day Rather than having compassion on this man, they put Jesus to the test. They say, is it lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath? And then Jesus, seeing right through their games, he looks at this man who no doubt is a bruised reed, no doubt is fairly, just barely continuing on flame, and he heals him. He restores him to health. And then the Pharisees, the next verse, go out and plot how to destroy him. You see, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, are a microcosm of how this world wants to go about accomplishing their mission. Power, force, coercion, let's go out and get this thing. And there stands Jesus, moving toward the lowly, moving toward the weak, healing them, restoring them, bringing about justice and salvation, and doing it relatively quietly. You've noticed if you're doing community Bible reading in Mark, right? I mean, how many times does Jesus do something and then he's like, cool, just keep it quiet for now? We read that, we're like, how, why not just tell everybody? You now Jesus, he goes about his work differently. And before we move on to this last section, I want to draw a few implications from this because I think this is just so rich for us. Why, why does this matter for us here today? Well, I want to make this observation. First of all, Jesus deals gently with those who know they are lowly. Jesus deals gently with those who can identify with being a bruised reed in a barely flickering flame. There is a kind of person that Jesus does not move toward with this posture, and it's those who in their pride or in their arrogance or who have set themselves against him and his people, who have adopted the power strategies of this world, it's not the posture that we get, but here we get this beautiful offer that the only way to receive the gentleness of this servant king is by seeing yourself in the low place. My, my kids have been uh, learning how to sing Jesus Loves Me, and we've been doing sign language with it because my daughter has cochlear implants, and um, if I were to cry in this sermon, this would be the section, but I'm not going to do it. It's okay. Uh, so we sing the song together. She's learning all the signs. It's awesome, right? And uh, her favorite part is when we get to the, the end of kind of the bridge area. It says, little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong, right? And the sign for strong is like this. So Maddie's always waiting. She gets to the very end. He is strong. It's always exciting. Um, but man, I was struck this week. That's, just, that's not just a kid's song, is it? I mean, the little ones who see the strength of Jesus are not just little children. It's those who are little in their own soul. It's those who have a posture of a childlike faith. It's those who know that they are weak and He is strong. And friends, the invitation of this passage is if you think you are strong, you're not going to receive the gentleness of the servant king. And so I would urge you, if you are standing in your own strength today, yield from that. Embrace a posture of weakness. That is where we see the strength of Christ. I love what Spurgeon says. probably my favorite Spurgeon quote. He says, "...big hearts never get Christ inside of them. Christ lives not in great hearts, but in little ones. Mighty and proud spirits never have Jesus Christ, for he comes in at low doors, but he will not come in at high ones. He who has a broken heart and a low spirit shall have the Savior, but none else." So, friends, are you little in heart? That's the first implication. The second is this. If this is how Jesus treats us, is this how we treat one another? You see, the church ought to be full of people who are bruised reeds and faintly burning flames. Jesus quietly, patiently, gently meets us in our weakness. And we ought to be a community where that's happening. Not taking our cues and our value systems from corporate America or from anything else, but from the ethics of the kingdom of God. This culture ought to permeate any community that's centered on this servant king, Jesus. I mean, thank goodness Jesus has a different value system than we have, right? I mean, who's looking on a resume for the person who's a broken reed or a barely barely about to go out flame? I mean, nobody in here is putting meekness on your job description. It's not what employers are looking for. But Jesus, the king of all kings, he comes and he moves precisely towards those people. The meek shall inherit the earth. Jesus embodies that. We are called as a community to that. So when we encounter in our own selves and in other people around us broken reed and a flame that's about to go out, do we feel like Jesus to that? That's the call on our community. Now there's a risk here. Because we tend to view meekness as weakness, if we're being honest with ourselves, don't we? We don't view that as a strength. There's a temptation here that we can view the meekness of this servant king as being weakness, as being an inability to complete his mission. And this passage is quick to correct us. You see, this servant is successful. Let's look at the success of the servant. Look at verse 4. It says, He will not grow faint or be discouraged he established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. You see, in all of these servant songs that Isaiah has, and we're going to see them in greater and greater detail as we go, there's something about this servant that leads him to be a suffering servant. We're going to see that most profoundly in chapters 52 and 53 in just a few weeks, but there's even hints of it right here in this passage. You see, in verse 4, when it says, he will not grow faint or be discouraged, the root word there for grow faint and discouraged is the exact same root words in the Hebrew as the bruised reed and the faintly burning wick. It's a little play on words that's lost for us in this translation. Here's what it's telling us. This servant is going to share in the suffering of his people in some capacity. The reason why he can be so gentle to the bruised reed and to the faintly burning wick is because he himself is going to experience something like that. But as he goes through that, he will not snap in half and break apart. He will not be snuffed, up, snuffed out. He will prevail in what his mission is. See, though all will look at this servant and think he is useless and brings nothing to the table, he will prevail. And we know that all of this leads to a horrible scene at Calvary on a Friday on a cross but then is accentuated on a Sunday morning three days later with an empty tomb, isn't it? See, he will faithfully fulfill his mission to bring God's kingdom of justice to the very ends of the earth, but he will do so through suffering. But that suffering does not have the final word. You see, this weakness, this suffering, this posture of meekness, it's one that is valued in the economy of the kingdom of God. It's the very thing that the servant banks his success on. And this passage ends in the only fitting place that it can. It says, verse 8 and following, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, the new things I now declare. Before you they spring forth, I I tell you of them. The Lord is saying, listen, I have staked it all on the mission of this servant. And just as my word always comes true, I tell you this is going to happen and you will see it come to fruition. This servant will succeed where all others have failed. Israel has failed. Idolatry has let them down. They're in exile. Listen, we have failed to be faithful to God and what he has called us to. Our idols have let us down. And at the end of the day, we can be weary and weak and tired. But the gentle servant king will succeed. He will accomplish it. And I love the invitation here. The rest of Isaiah 42, verses after that, it's just a worship song. It's just a song of praise to glorify this great gentle servant king because he is worthy of that worship. But Here's where I want to close today. I don't want us to miss in this vision for justice for the nations and salvation to the ends of the earth that we're still in this passage talking about a servant aren't we and that's the striking thing that nobody saw in Jesus I mean God himself comes in the flesh and what does he come as a servant his whole life was marked by servitude I want to read Philippians 2 because I think it captures this dynamic really powerfully on the heels of Isaiah 42 here's what the Apostle Paul says he says have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, the invitation to us this morning is to do exactly what's encouraged in Philippians 2 and exactly what's encouraged in Isaiah 42. We are to give glory to God. We are to worship Him. Because we, we who were bruised reeds but not broken. We who are just little smoldering, barely hanging on flame but not snuffed out. We who sat in prison now freed. We who dwelled in darkness but now brought into the light. You see, we as a people who've experienced that, we glorify God. We point to His greatness and we call others to do the same. So, friends, with our bruised souls, our broken bodies, our barely keeping it together lives, the invitation of Isaiah 42 is this. It's exactly what verse 1 says Behold my servant. Behold my servant. In him and in him alone is hope found for our weary souls. Well, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, what a profound passage you've given us here in your word that points to uh, your glory your gentleness, your grace. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you do deal gently with those who are weak, those who have been discarded, those who are viewed as useless, those who are uh, sick with sin and suffering in this fallen world that we live in. God, thank you that you do not come and snap those in half or snuff those out who are in that experience. I pray that you would give us uh, the ability to behold you in your glory as the gentle servant king. And help us here at the King's Church to be a people who are marked by being lowly in heart. Not haughty and prideful, but lowly. And I pray that our community, God, that we would just experience what it looks like for this to be played out amongst a people. May we be gentle towards the weak. May we be patient with those around us. When sin and suffering comes, may we be a people who encourages one another with the good news of this kind of king. And may that expand uh, beyond our walls here to other people in our city and our community. May they come to know you as a savior. May they come to be a part of your kingdom. We pray that in Jesus' name.